Welcome to the Rockbrook Church Podcast. Our hope is that today's message brings you hope and clarity for your spiritual journey. We love hearing how God is working in your life. Feel free to share any stories of how this message gave you a new perspective and hope. Email us at church at rockbrook.org to tell your story. I wonder how many of you would be excited, be overwhelmed with anticipation if uh, you knew God was calling you to do something, something specific. I wonder how many of you would say, uh, well, I'm completely in. Uh, I want to know what God is calling me to do, and I want to do it. Whenever you recognize that you have been chosen or have been called to do something, it builds anticipation. It emboldens you. It empowers you. It reminds me of my middle school basketball coach. And I was a very average player, uh, doing the best I could, wasn't really hurting the team, but I don't know that I was always helping the team, you know what I'm saying? And then one week the coach said to me, uh, uh, he said, Mr. Walter, he called all the kids by their last name, Mr. and their last name, Mr. Walter, I have a mission for you. You're the best defender we have. And he's calling out my strength, and he's psyching me up, and he said, he said in fact, Mr. Walter, say it. Say, I'm a defender. And I said, I- I'm a defender? And uh, he said, in this week's game, uh, I don't want you to try and score any points. I don't want you to call any plays. I don't want you to do too much dribbling. Uh, I don't want you to focus on anything in this game other than a keeping Gabe, who was the best shooter on the other team that week, other than keeping Gabe from scoring. Don't let him get open. Don't let him, uh, don't let him dribble. Don't let him shoot. Do not let him score. And then he said something that I had no idea what it, what it meant. He said, I want you to eat that kid's lunch. <laughs> and I thought, do I see Gabe at lunch? I think maybe he's at lunch the same time as me. I'm not sure. That was my mission. The coach was calling me out, and, and he coached me on it in practice, and he worked on it with me in warm-ups, and I'm here to tell you that Gabe did not score a single point in that game. That's right. Amen. The height, the pinnacle of my very athletic career. There's just something about being assigned to do something that creates a sense of anticipation. It emboldens you. There's just a power and focus. And I want to show you today that you are called to do something very different. And when we talk about calling, a a lot of people immediately jump to, uh, well, what am I called to do? But God, just like my coach did, always starts with the who before he gets to the do. Do you understand this? Our God is more concerned with who you are before he's concerned with what you do. Because if the who is not right, the do will never be right. God's concerned with the motives, the heart, the integrity. And whenever you know who you are, you'll know what to do. That's why the coach wanted me to say, I'm a defender. Knowing who you are in the relationship determines uh, what you do. You know, knowing I am Lauren's husband, that I'm Uh, this kid's father, that I'm this person's friend. Knowing who I am in those relationships determines how I treat those people. So Peter is writing to a group of first century believers who would have been tempted to forget who they were because uh, they were so hated. 
Next week, we're going to talk more about the persecution they were under. Uh, as next week, I hope uh, everyone in our church joins us next weekend as it is International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. But what we'll see this week in this section of 1 Peter is that one of the things believers uh, were facing is a society that just had no idea who the followers of Jesus, who they really were. And their misunderstandings were almost comical to us today. In fact, a very common idea that the skeptical world had about Jesus followers is that they were superstitious, that they were incestuous, and that they were cannibals. Where in the world did they get that? Well, they, uh, the society around them uh, believed they were superstitious because of the miracles that were happening. Some actually thought Christians were incestuous because uh, they were having these agape feasts with love feasts with their brothers and sisters in Christ. And after you've heard that secondhand, thirdhand, it gets to the powers of be, that's very confusing of what that might be. Uh, then uh, some in the society thought Christians were cannibals uh, because uh, their Savior said, take my body which is broken for you, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And, and the, the misconceptions, people just didn't understand what that could be and those are just some of the misconceptions we find in history so there you have parts of a society and and government who not only want Christians to give up their faith and persecutes them which we'll talk about next week persecution but you also have a society that just completely misunderstands them and before Peter tells them what they're called to do he reminds them of who they actually are. And I want you to know that who Peter describes these first century Christians to be is uh, absolutely who you are in Christ as well. And these are some of the word pictures he uses in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 9. He says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I just want to walk through these word pictures quickly here and talk about what they say about you. Before because before we talk about what we do, we're going to talk about who we are. And I want to talk personally to you, about you, as a follower of Christ. And God says, number one, he says, you're a chosen people. What does that mean? It means you are, you are absolutely, completely accepted. Remember in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were a cho the chosen nation. Peter says, now that's true of you as followers of Christ. The truth is God has accepted you. You don't have to live by what other people think. You don't have to live for other people's acceptance. God has accepted you, except that Christ has accepted you. And that's how he sees you in Jesus Christ. Another word picture he gives is you are a, number two, a royal priesthood. What does that mean? It means you are fully capable. This would have meant so much to them because they had such a respect for the priesthood. And he says, you know what, you're fully capable of doing what a priest does. And, and this is why uh, we, we don't have to go to a priest to confess our sins. You are one. Uh, we don't have to go to uh, a priest to get forgiveness. 
You are one. You're, you're a royal priesthood. A royal, you're serving the king of kings. What does a priest do? A priest represents God to man and represents man to God. And, and the scripture teaches us you're fully capable of doing that. And I know you don't always feel capable, but this is God's view of you. You're fully capable. He goes on, number three, he says, you are a holy nation. Means, friend, you are extremely valuable. And not just you, but us together, a holy nation. When we talk about holy, man, we're talking about something that's so valuable. That's why it's a holy Bible, or the holy land, or the holy city, or the holy of holies. All valuable things. What, what makes something valuable? It's often the one who owns it. You know, a writing pen, that's worth, that you may be holding in your hand, that's worth a few dimes. Uh, an antique pen, maybe worth a few hundred dollars. But the pen Thomas Jefferson used to write the Declaration of Independence or to sign that, that pen is priceless. You belong to God. And you are extremely valuable. You are priceless. Next he says, uh, you are the people, the people of God. What does that mean for you? You are eternally loved. You're part of the people of God. God is love. We are his people. God's love is unconditional. You are eternally loved. God doesn't give his love, take it away, give it back again, take it away. No, what do we know from God's word? What does God say about us? That nothing could separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You are eternally loved, eternal life in Jesus Christ. The next thing he reminds us of is that you have, so once you did not have mercy, but now you have received mercy. So you are totally forgiven. Now God's forgiveness is total. Think about this with me. God knows everything. He is omniscient. So God's forgiveness, therefore, has to be total or not at all. He couldn't hold some of it back because he knows everything uh, that's wrong and everything that needs to be given. He knows everything that you're going to do for the rest of your life. And so he has to totally give his forgiveness or not at all. And what did he decide to do? He decided to give his mercy, to give his grace, and to give total forgiveness to us. And then he also says, Peter, in this passage, he says, who called you? And that's absolutely true of you. You are called. You are called. I'm accepted, capable, valuable, loved, forgiven, and called. And what I hope you'll understand today is when you know who you are, you will recognize what you're called to do. Now, the skeptical world today, the society we live in, uh, those who do not like Christianity and those who do not like Christians, they typically do not call us superstitious, incestuous cannibals, right? I mean, that's a pretty rare interpretation. But are there still a lot of misunderstandings and a lot of skepticism around Christianity? Yes or no? What world do you live in? I'd be like, yes, absolutely. There is a lot of skepticism. There is a lot of wrong ideas. A lot of crossed wires. A lot of false impressions. I mean, this is a skeptical world today that looks at Christ's followers and calls us what? Self-righteous, judgmental, intolerant bigots 
And that is the world we live in, and that's what we have to wrestle with today. And the tragedy of that is there are some so-called Christians who have rightly earned those titles, haven't they? I mean, you can look at current events in the world and see uh, some people that go to such an extreme that, I mean, it's, I would call it possession, the spewing and the hate that they have, the bigotry that they say in the name of God. It's an affront to God, something that's unacceptable to the church and a sin against God. But this is the image that we're up against as we stand for what's right and what's true and as we live for God. But because we are these things, here's what First Peter or here's what Peter says to do in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He says, dear friends, I urge you as, and he comes back to this again and again and again, doesn't he? As temporary residents, as foreigners, as exiles, to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us, the day that, that Christ returns. Notice here that Peter doesn't say, hey, first, you need to convince them to believe what you believe. What he says is, no, we're going to live such good lives among the pagans. We're going to show them what we believe by how we behave. We're going to live good lives. Peter essentially has this real confidence, it's confidence of to live righteously, live boldly, live rightly. Notice he isn't saying you just always have to be on the defense, and of course there is a time to defend the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, but some of you uh, probably had a coach that said this, that is the best defense is what? A good offense, right. Sometimes the best defense is actually a good offense to show the goodness of God in the way that we actually live. This is why uh, you, you don't hear me up here constantly defending the misconceptions against Christianity. I don't come up here every week and push back on every uh, misconception about me or about Rockbrook Church or every uh, uh, every misconception in our community about God and the church and Christ and constantly just defending and pushing back. You won't see me in a social media battle defending, defending, defending. What I'm going to do as the leader of the church is instead say, this is who we are. This is our mission. This is what God has called us to do and point to how lives are changing and how good God's word is and point to the generosity of Christ followers and how we serve. And, and, and we're going to have people tell one another their testimonies and how their lives are changed. Now they're getting clean and how this is impacting their family. Th this really came to life for me uh, when I was a teenager. And I had a, a job and a new girl had started at that job. She's a young adult. And I invited her to church. And she just looked at me flatly and said, uh, Christians are weird. I would never go to church. And she goes on. She says, they're hateful. I don't want to be around them. And then throughout the rest of the week, 
she would say very antagonistic things about Christians and believers and say things that uh, I knew were not true. So I went home and I'm telling my parents about this. And they said, she's obviously been given some bad information. She's been wounded. So just be nice to her, work hard, see what happens. And I remember thinking to myself, I didn't say it out loud because I'm no fool, but I said uh, to myself, that's it? Like, what good is it being a pastor's kid if I don't get some comebacks and some good information, you know, that I can go into an argument with and, and win? And so time goes on, and she's working with me and other Christians who work there, and she ends up going through uh, a devastating thing in her life. And what did she see from Christians that she worked with? She saw them uh, picking up shifts for her, uh, giving her rides, working alongside her on her projects, sometimes staying late when she couldn't to help a project be completed and it be done uh, very well in her name and serving her through that season of life. And what do you know? Uh, she ended up coming to church and she ended up wanting to make more and more and more friends with Christians. And rather than going in and defending all the accusations, the best defense was a really, really, really good offense. And not in a way of, oh, hey, let's do this and we'll prove her wrong, but just in a way of this is who God has called us to be. And, and it's just... a a conviction I've had ever since that we're not going to be known as Jesus followers for what we're against and how good of an argument we can make, but we're going to be known for what we're for. And we're not going to let others get us off of our mission. We're going to be unselfish with others. And in this world, the standard for relationships is selfishness. We base our relationships on what we can get out of them. But God has called Christians as foreigners and exiles to not live of this world, to be holy, to be different, to be pure. So even in the most difficult relationships, Peter uses a word that's used throughout the New Testament for our relationships, and that is the word submission. Now, we don't understand that word at first because uh, submission in our day is often used to mean being forced to do something that somebody else wants you to do. But the biblical meaning is the inverse of that. It doesn't mean making somebody do something that they don't want to do. That's not Christianity. Listen, Christians are not to make other people do things that they don't want to do. We have a choice. Uh, yes, there's right and wrong. Yes, choices have consequences, but Jesus gives people a choice, and biblical submission is not being forced to do something that you don't want to do. Biblical submission means this. Submission is the willing choice to be unselfish, not being forced to do what someone else wants, but rather doing what others need. It's living like Jesus. What did Christ do? He submitted himself, being born as a baby living as a man, giving his life. I, he would even say, 
listen, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. He chose to give us what we need. So Peter then starts giving different examples of submission. In verse uh, 13, he says this, Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority. Now these verses, as he talks about, he's going to go on to talk about the emperor, he's going to talk about governors, he's going to talk about the government. Being unselfish, even when you're not in control of the relationship. This is the most difficult time. I mean, could you think of a more difficult relationship for him to lead with here? Peter says, be unselfish even when you're not in control. Now, how do you express this biblical attitude? Well, he begins with the motive. Why do you do it? You do it for the Lord's sake. So you don't do it for your sake. You don't do it for the government's sake. You realize everything I do is an example of Jesus Christ. And there was a misconception about believers then. And um, honestly, it's a misconception that many people have of Christianity now. And that is some people think that Christianity is all about fighting what's wrong with the government. And so they minimize your faith and they shrink it down to something that they can ignore. But when you show unselfishness, even to your enemies, which the government was to them then, it becomes impossible to ignore, and it plants a seed of faith to those around you. Now, I want you to notice today that he does not say, agree with every human authority. He'll say later, show proper respect, not because they've earned it, but again, for the Lord's sake. Again, he does not say, align yourself with every human authority. And it's a tension that we sometimes miss that you can honor someone without aligning yourself to them. I, I think of Peter himself. He's a great example. You know, Peter died by the hand of the emperor. He was crucified. He refused to say, Caesar is Lord. He would say only, Jesus is Lord, and he would not stop preaching Christ. And because of his reverence for Christ, uh, he actually didn't want to die in the same way that Christ died, so he asked to be crucified upside down. And that's how Peter died. So Peter did not cave to the emperor. He did not cave to every human authority. You can submit, be unselfish, honor, respect, and still stand for what you believe. And then after looking at governing authorities, he, he looks at an even more difficult relationship. He looks at slaves and masters. In 1 Peter 2.18, he says, Slaves, in reverent fear of God... Submit yourselves to your masters. Now, as Peter uh, writes about this in his day, he's writing to a culture that is filled with slaves. Uh, there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. They were possessions, but they did all the work. The doctors, the teachers, the musicians, the secretaries, construction workers. Uh, uh, the Roman Empire was built on the backs of slaves. Most often when you see slavery brought up in the New Testament, uh, this was not a race-based kidnapping type of slavery. We've got to take into consideration the world in which they lived. You had the Roman Empire, and then you also had many, many people selling themselves to serve others. They lived in poverty. They could not make ends meet. They could not get enough to eat. 
and they would sell themselves as a slave or a bondservant to someone else, or uh, a family would be so desperate, I can't imagine, but they would have to sell their child into slavery because that's the only way they know that that child would be able to eat and have a chance to even live. And at least 30% of the population that the New Testament was written to had a master. And depending on their master, they may have been treated harshly. So when the Bible is talking about the relationship of slaves and masters, it's not condoning slavery. It's telling people how to live, how to deal with the reality that they were facing. In other places in Scripture, it says, if you can be free, be free. So he's not condoning slavery here. He's saying, here's the type of relationship to have, even if you are in that situation. And he says, um, submit. Submit. Even if they're harsh. Love them. Ask God to bring them to faith. Peter says the motive, again, is not the master and it's not even yourself. It's the reverent fear, like we talked about last week, of God. And God says he will commend it. Peter will go on here to say that that type of attitude, he will commend it, meaning he will reward it. Here's the point here. Satan wants to use harsh people in your life. A harsh master, a harsh leader, a harsh employer, a, a, a harsh person of position in your life to steal your heart of love and replace it with a heart of hate. But friend, when we get to heaven, we're going to see people who loved in the face of being treated harshly. We'll see them rewarded in ways that are beyond our imagination. Maybe for a few of them, their reward will be more and more people in heaven because of their example. And Peter talks about another relationship in this section of, of Scripture. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Now again, submission does not mean an unwilling compliance. It means an unselfish choice. And he's going to go on here to take the example of women in the Bible who, uh, were, over, who were not overwhelmed by fear. And that's where Peter kind of ends up with this word to wives. And uh, it's, it's on point. I think many people would tell you is that there's just so much that can go wrong in a family, isn't there? There's so much that can go wrong in life. There's so much that can go wrong with the household and with the kids and with the realities of life that, that we can be overwhelmed with the fears of what could go wrong. And you can hang on to those fears so tightly that they actually cause you to become selfish rather than unselfish. And, and you feel a right to be selfish because you're afraid. Well, how do you overcome that fear? Uh, I have a suggestion. And um, I realize I'm not a wife and I'm not a mother, so I'm, but I'm the one here with the microphone giving a suggestion, so sorry about that. But this is... Uh, something I heard in a message from Pastor Kelly years and years and years ago, uh, speaking to couples, speaking to husbands and wives. And uh, I found it impactful for me. And that is when you are overwhelmed with fear, you literally close your eyes 
and visualize yourself in that circumstance, in that situation, in the hands of God. That you see yourself in that circumstance being held and covered by God himself. And you realize you're not alone. And in that moment of trust, you can move against the fear. And he goes on and he gives a word to husbands in verse 7. He says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect. The point here is that mutual submission uh, makes a marriage work great. When the unselfishness is mutual, in the same way, what does that mean? Well, he's saying to wives, in the same way that Christ uh, submitted himself, you submit. And then husbands, in the same way that Christ submitted himself. So uh, the unselfishness is not based on another person. Mutual submission can't be based on another person's unselfishness because as soon as they're selfish, then now you're selfish. The only way to be mutually unselfish is to base it on Christ. And I have found this to be true. I just think of my own household. Over, over the last month, the month of October, uh, all four of us have had an extremely bad day in our house. A selfish day. A rough day. But I'm so grateful that my wife's unselfishness towards me is not based on me. It's based on Christ. So when I'm having a bad day, uh, uh, she, can hold, she can hold up to it. When, when they're having a bad day, my unselfishness is not based on their attitude. It's based on the attitude of Christ. And that's how you make it through in a household. That's how you make it through in the selfish or the rough times. Peter's going to go on to say that even though wives may be weaker, husbands treat them as equals. What do we know from this? We know that there's no room for violence, for abuse in the relationship. It disrespects the wife. It dishonors God. That's not why he made the man stronger. We're not to bully our wives. We're to respect them. We're not to put them down. We're to, mu to mutually submit to them. Don't fall into that temptation. Treat your wife is a daughter of the king. What do you do when, when these relationships aren't working? What do you do uh, when the submission is not mutual? Meaning you're the only one willing to do this, and it's really, really difficult. Two things. The first is prayerfully release your expectations back to God. Don't try to make other people into what you wish they were. You know, for me, this is the serenity prayer. I'm taking, as Jesus did, the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. And with these, when these relationships are difficult, continue to build their faith. Build their faith through your example. Let your example of unselfishness build them to a place of faith. For me, my wife's choices have built my faith. My wife's submission and unselfishness has caused me to be more considerate and respectful of her. Yeah, these are difficult relationships to apply. This, I mean, could you think of more difficult relationships for Peter to bring up here? Husbands, wives, slaves and masters, human authority, government. But this is our calling. In fact, he says, this is God's will for you. 1 Peter 2, 15. Let's read this one out loud together. 
For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. It's the way you live. Not just what you post on social media, not just the way that you argue. Yes, have good answers for your faith, but it's not just that. It's the way that you live that silences the talk of people who simply don't know better. So what's our strategy? It's to confidently, boldly share the love of Christ. And we will not reach everyone, but over time with consistency and integrity, we will reach some if we live rightly in a way that truly gets the attention of this world. In verse 21, he says, you, know what, you want to know what you're called to do? The calling? He says, to this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Here's what I hope we'll understand, is that there will be times where you do good, you live a good life, you do the right thing, and you'll suffer for it. Uh, there are Christians that Peter was writing to that they would suffer in ways that go beyond our understanding. But he says, let Christ be the example. Who was, who was Jesus Christ? Well, Peter goes on to describe him. He says, here's your example. And he quotes from Old Testament prophecy along the way as well. He says, Jesus Christ, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. This is our Savior. This is the Son of God, the King of Kings. Peter goes on to show how we're called to be holy and we're called to be different in a way that you cannot imagine. Because let's be honest, there are people who are not followers of Jesus who live good lives and do good things every day, right? We all know people who do not like the church, who don't believe in God, who do amazing things, and hats off to them. But what Peter's about to say takes faithfulness, obedience, and holiness to a whole nother level. Because what's normal is normally you may do something good to somebody you like or someone who is less fortunate than you. But when someone hurts you, normal is to hurt them back or refuse to do anything for them at all. When someone hates you, normal is to hate them back or to be completely indifferent about them. When someone cuts you off in traffic, normal is to want to cut them off back. Like, we don't have a Rockbrook bumper sticker for a reason, everybody, okay? <laughs> and there is, there is somebody here, I don't know who I'm talking to, but you've been wronged. You've been hurt. You've been offended. And you're scared. And you're about to see that you have been called by God to respond in a different way, a pure way, a holy way, to be holy as God is holy. And this is what Peter says in chapter 3, verse 9. He says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Let, let this sink in. What is God's calling on our lives as foreigners and exiles? Listen, th this is not, like, this isn't what I would want to preach. <laughs> this, is what I would, this is not what my flesh would want to say. And this may not be what you want to hear today. But let the words 
of Scripture sink in. He says, on the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. That's what God has called us to do. And it's our own blessing that's on the line. What are we called to do? Jesus says, when someone asks you to go a mile, go too. When someone uh, hates you, pray for them. Uh, someone asks for your shirt, give them your jacket too. Because we've been called out of darkness into a wonderful light. And here's what I hope you'll understand, is God has called us to, you're on call. You're on call. A anybody in here have a job where you at times have to be on call you're like a first responder, uh, or, or you, if you own a business, uh, you've got to be on call. IT guys got to be on call. Come on, if you're a pastor at Rockbrook Church, your hand better be up. You're on call sometimes, because you know, as much as I try to respect your time and, and your schedule and everything, you know, there's a few times a year I've, <laughs> I've had to call. You know, you're, you're on call. And so, uh, you know, we, we've all know people who have to be on call. My wife is a nurse, and... and um, in all her various nursing jobs, she's had to have a call or be on call. In fact, up until about a year and a half ago, she carried a pager like an old school beeper. Come on, somebody. And we could be at a restaurant. Uh, we could be uh, at an event at home. We could be at a birthday party and the thing goes off and she's got to go. Why? Because of who she is. She's a nurse. And that's who she is. So what does she do? She goes when she gets called. If you are a follower of Christ, you are chosen by God. That's who you are. Therefore, you are on call. I was talking about this with my wife, and she says what you have to remember in that moment is that when the call goes off, it's not a thing on the other end. It's not just some machine that's alerting you. There's what? There is a person on the other end of that call. If you're a first responder, you know this isn't just a radio going off. This isn't just a bell going off. There is a person, a human being, that's on the other end of this call. This is what I hope you'll say to a dark world, a world that God has brought, called you to bring light. I hope you'll say, oh, I'm on call. I'm on call. Would you write that down if you're taking notes? You're on call to pray for those who need prayer. You're on call to share the good news of Jesus. You're on call to comfort the brokenhearted. You're on call to proclaim freedom to those who are trapped in sin. You're on call for the Lord's sake to live such good lives among the pagans that though, yeah, they may accuse you of doing wrong, but they'll see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Would you pray with me, please? God, help us to know who you are and to therefore know who we are. That we are accepted, we are capable, we are valuable, loved, forgiven, and called. Called to a different standard, a holy standard. God, help us to have not just a good defense, but also a good offense of love and endurance. God, I pray uh, this morning that you would just fill through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would fill Rockbrook Church and refill Rockbrook Church with a reservoir of endurance, a reservoir of light for a dark world. 
that, that when they are laughed at, they will continue to show love. That when they are criticized, they will continue to show love. Why? Because Jesus, the sinless Son of God, did not retaliate. And He is our example. He bore our sins in His body that we could have eternal life. And God says we've been called out of darkness into a wonderful, marvelous light. Thank you, God, for the peace that we get to have in Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love for you to get connected to what's going on at Rockbrook Church. Visit us online at rockbrook.org for service times, small group information, and other ways you can discover your purpose here on earth.